Hello everybody and welcome back to the Nutritionist podcast. I am delighted to have you all back on episode eight and I do apologize that it's a little bit late. Um, I had a fun-filled weekend visiting friends over on the Emerald Isle so that was really really lovely um, but it meant that I couldn't record the podcast yesterday unless you wanted to hear what was going on in Dublin Airport um, so I do apologise about that, but I am better late than never getting it out to you. Um, and yeah, there was a funny episode, a funny um, incident actually. Someone must have hijacked the tannoy in um, the airport when I was waiting to board the flight and put a shout out for any single ladies on the Leeds Bradford flight. So I don't know if anyone got lucky on that flight. Um, there was nothing as exciting happening on the Newcastle flight. So yeah, that was a funny moment. Um, but yeah, back to the podcast anyway, I thought I would do a little bit of a different vibe this week and I am doing a question and answer in Mythbusting um, episode. So these are things that have been submitted through social media or through clients. So hopefully you will get something from it. If, as always, you've got any questions, then please just feel free to get in touch and I will be happy to help wherever I can. So getting straight into it then, the first myth that I had put to me is about um the fact that we shouldn't eat after 6 p.m and there's been a lot of misinformation about you know eating past a certain point with regards to you know storing fat and how it affects your insulin levels and cortisol levels and things like this so I just want to clarify that this is a complete myth there's no evidence to say that we shouldn't be eating past a certain point especially when you look at some people's lives so like if you are training at a certain point at night or if you're a shift worker, if you are a busy family, you know, a busy household and you can only eat at certain points, then things like this is going to just cause huge, huge inconvenience and confusion. Um, there is no magic number or, you know, mag- any magic cutoff point that we should be stopping our eating window on any given day. It's normally talked about in relation to fat loss. And I do hope that like the narrative of this, you know, not eating past a certain point and not eating certain foods um you know at night is um is is lessening a little bit but that may be just because I am not exposed to it you know my echo chamber of, of my social media and things um it might be that, that that I just don't follow these kind of accounts and stuff like that um don't you know tune into this kind of media but if it is out there then please do know that it it is a myth there's no evidence behind it the main thing that we want to be looking at when we look at our nutrition on an evening is just that it supports our sleep um so we want to be making sure that we are getting a quality night's sleep and when we look at um you know going to bed whether it's on a fuller stomach or you know a little bit hungrier it is all going to be down to personal preference so there's no you know um like i say there's no magic cut off point for food there is no specific rules around what we should be doing so if you are somebody that feels, um, you know, more comfortable going to bed on a fuller stomach, then that's what you should be doing. If you are someone that prefers to go to bed on a little bit of an emptier stomach, um, again, that is what you should be doing. It's personal preference. If you find that you are exercising early in the morning and, you know, you might not have time for breakfast or like I say, you are exercising later on at night um, then you might want to look at the um the composition of your meal that you're having um and maybe having a bit more carbs with it if you are going off to exercise in the morning um and that might support your training better but there is no um window that we should be looking at to say no you should not eat in this period in this time period 
the research that has been done around this um, is really, really limited and it's also quite conflicting. So the main thing with sleep, and, and, and I actually find this fascinating, um, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to stuff like this, but with sleep, we have what we know as our circadian rhythm. So this is our internal body clock. And we actually have a little bundle of nerves in the brain that act as like a physical body clock. So neuroscientists can actually look at this um, when they are um, looking into the brain and researching the brain. And, and I just think that is absolutely fascinating that we have this little body clock that is working away in our in our brains. And again, it's going to be completely independent on um, you know, each person on on how that works and 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 how effective it is. So we have this collection of nerves, and it's called the um, it's it's abbreviated to the SCN. I'll try not to butcher this here, but it's the suprachiasmatic. I think is how you say it, nucleus. So that's our little body clock that we all have, and it controls how much melatonin is produced. So we know melatonin is our sleep inducing um hormone. And like currently, there's no link between meal timing and, um, you know, bedtime and when we should be getting to sleep. And aside from, you know, melatonin and our own individual body clocks, there's lots and lots of factors to consider. There's also no evidence that's strong enough to support, um, you know, certain foods causing um, like difficulty with sleeping. I know when I was younger, I used to be told, you know, not to have cheese or chocolate before bed because it would give you nightmares. But there's actually no evidence to support this. The one thing that the research does show us is that dairy can help sleep. And this might be because there is an amino acid known as tryptophan in dairy products. So it's found in milk um, and it's found in some other proteins as well. And it's linked to less broken sleep and less restlessness. So it's an amino acid, as I mentioned, and it is needed to create the sleep inducing chemical messengers, serotonin and melatonin. And it's thought that carbohydrates can actually help tryptophan to cross over the blood brain barrier. Um, so get from the blood system into the brain, which is often why like milky drinks with some honey or something in are recommended because you've got the milk and then you've got the carbohydrate in there as well. So it helps to increase the availability of the tryptophan. Um, and we can also get this, as I mentioned, from some other high protein foods. Fish is a really, really good um, example of a tryptophan containing food. And that has been shown to be linked with sleep improvements as well. There's also some research to show us that the vitamin D and the omega-3 in the fish might support sleep as well. So there's so many benefits to vitamin D and omega-3. And um, this is just one of many. And I always recommend to people that if you aren't getting enough oily fish in your diet, so if you're not getting the recommended two to three portions per week, then you should be supplementing with an omega-3. Um, there's more and more benefits of it coming out in the research as well. So I know this wasn't in the question, but I just want to touch on as well um, something that I think gets a lot of confusion put out there around it, and that is the glycemic index. So you might say this abbreviated to GI, but it is basically just a measurement of how quickly a carbohydrate containing food can spike our blood glucose levels. And we're going to come on to that in a little bit more detail, but um, you need to remember that a spike in blood glucose is completely normal and essential actually for our bodies to function. So higher GI foods indicate a faster rise in blood glucose. Again, this is not a negative thing. So although there is a little bit of conflicting evidence in relation to this, um, 
there is evidence out there and quite a bit of it to show that consuming um, high GI foods, specifically things like white rice, um, you know, ha- could be linked to sleep improvements and falling asleep more quickly. And this might be related to the increased availability of the tryptophan in the body um, that occurs in response to consuming that carbohydrate. So, you know, there is research out there to support this. And that might be why you feel a little bit more sleepier when you have those kind of foods. Um, it also may be that certain foods actually contain, um, you know, melatonin, but the research around this is limited. There was one done, I think it was about almonds and it was in people who consumed like 10 almonds a day or something like that, um, because it is thought that these include magnesium and melatonin um, and they reported better sleep. Um, so, you know, there might be some evidence around that and hopefully there'll be more that, that comes out. Um, magnesium then has actually been found to promote relaxation through activating the parasympathetic nervous system. So our parasympathetic nervous system then, we've got our sympathetic and our parasympathetic. And our parasympathetic is um, responsible for signal signal and relaxation. And, and, you know, in caveman times when we were undergoing a lot of stress, um, it would be the responsibility of this nervous system to start to relax us and help us switch off. So it might be that our parasympathetic nervous system is um, activated by magnesium and it is also thought that it might impact melatonin levels, but we do need more research in this area. What I would say then, um, you know, before you get too hung up on, on, on anything else, it's our overall quality of our diet that is going to best support our sleep. Um, And then vice versa, our sleep can impact our diet massively. So moving on then, um, the next thing I'm going to come on to, which is quite a hot topic at the moment, is about the Zoe diet. Um, So the question around this was, is the Zoe diet needed to understand science around your body more? And if you haven't seen it, the Zoe diet is um, quite a new thing that's come out in the last... um, few years and it centers around apparently a personalized nutrition plan through tracking your food um via a blood glucose monitor that you attach to your arm and also sending off a stool sample which apparently looks at your gut microbiome so starting off i think it's really it's really good to have a basic understanding of science and how your body works and human biology. Um, and it's one thing I absolutely loved doing before I did my nursing. I did a human biology course um, alongside like health psychology and health sociology. And, you know, all of those aspects together are really, really like interesting to me and beneficial. Um, but human biology, having a basic understanding of the science was so, so interesting. Obviously, then understanding how your own body works is another topic in itself. Um, but like I always say to patients, you know, you are the master of your own body. You know it the best. You live with it day in and day out. So you should understand it really well. And having a, an understanding of basic human biology and science will support you to do that. While there is some, um, you know, helpful and, and truthful things that are put out in the Zoe diet, it's kind of 
they're kind of overshadowed by a lot of scaremongering and um you know some negative aspects of it as well um so a lot of the health advice in it like increasing your fiber getting more food variety in getting lots of whole foods is quite muddied then with incorrect information like regard disregarding the importance of calories when it comes to losing weight and being in a calorie deficit um and it's also creating this hierarchy of food morality so basically what it does is um you can you know scan a certain food or, or or that you're having a certain food like an avocado um and or you know a banana so how it does that is that you can say you were going to have a banana you might submit that into your app and it will suggest to you to have a different food um like an avocado now both of these things are really healthful foods and full of nutrients and really really beneficial for our overall health so one does not um you know hold a higher morality than another and that's one of the downsides of the zoe diet you know one of, one of many i will say it also puts out this personalized um nutrition selling point but actually when you look into it it gives a lot of the same advice to everybody and when you read the literature around it and actually look at some of the um information that Zoe company puts out to clients itself it's very vague um and non-specific and it's definitely not personalized the other thing is is there is no research that shows us that you can um tell exactly what you should be eating from a stool sample so while yes there might be you know some truth in some of it um the overall approach is a bit of a fad and it's potentially i think there's no research to show this yet but in time potentially going to be um one of the factors of disordered eating in future and i would be very very surprised if it's not it puts a huge focus on tracking your food and then on these blood sugar spikes which as i've mentioned um are completely essential and, and natural for our body to do you only need to be concerned about this if you are a type 1 or type 2 or type 3 diabetic or you have another medical condition where it's essential that you monitor your blood sugars alongside a healthcare professional um you know there is no evidence that shows us that this is beneficial in healthy individuals that don't have a medical condition like that there's also no evidence to show that there is um any long term benefits of doing this and it's still a form of a diet and there is a huge focus within the zoe diet of um you know weighing your food tracking your food um and like i say there's no long term effectiveness known and finally just touching on the absolute extreme cost of it so you would be much better off putting your money into something that is going to support you to live a more sustainable and healthful lifestyle than paying for a potential um risk factor to disordered eating that's my take on it and um i will be interested to see in time you know how things unfold with the zoe diet if it continues um but i just think anyone that is trying to sell like a one size fits all and i know they they put this across as a marketing of um you know for personalized nutrition but ultimately it is given the same advice to everybody and there is very very little research to back it up so to me they are just trying to line pockets um and i think they 
the disregard for a lot of other healthful behaviours um, is quite alarming as well. So the next question kind of ties in and it is asking if sugar ruins blood sugar. So I've kind of just talked about blood sugar a little bit. Um, but when we look at sugar, we know that, you know, one one food or one ingredient on its own is not good or bad. So sugar is not bad. Um, but like anything, you can have too much of a good thing. So sugar is found naturally in like fruit, vegetables, dairy products, but it's also added to food and drinks. Um, so the recommended daily amounts in the UK for adults is to get no more than 30 grams of sugar a day, which is about seven teaspoons. And we know that dietary sugar is made up of either a simple or a complex sugar. And this basically just depends on how many molecules it has. So simple sugars are things like fructose, glucose, lactose, and the complex sugars, our complex carbohydrates, are our starches from whole grains, vegetables, etc. So what we know is that our blood sugar spikes naturally when we eat, um, as I've mentioned. And when we eat the, you know, the simple sugars, it can have quite a, a quick um rise and fall in blood sugar or can cause quite a quick rise and fall in blood sugar. When we have the complex carbohydrates, the complex sugars, um, they're digested a little bit more slowly and they, they, they release glucose into the bloodstream um, a little bit more gradually. So this is where there's the focus on, you know, not having a lot of these simple sugars where it's going to, you know, spike your, your blood sugar um, and you're going to have the constant rise and fall. However, that happening, you know, is completely normal and completely natural. But what you can do is um, also include the complex carbohydrates. And again, that is essential for a healthy diet. Like I mentioned, you can have too much of a good thing. So if you have, you know, far too much simple sugar in your diet, um, then it can have an impact on how your, how your body responds um, to insulin. And then you can develop difficulties with this and you can develop insulin resistance um, or not not producing enough insulin and your um, the sugar can build up in your bloodstream. And this is where, you know, your insulin production is going to become less effective and it's going to lead you into potential complications of metabolic syndromes, you know, like diabetes. So no sugar is not bad and it does not ruin your blood sugar. Okay, so the next myth is going to be a real quick one because you've probably all heard me talk about it before, but it is that carbohydrates make you fat. So the only thing that will make you gain body fat is a surplus of calories. Carbohydrates are essential. They are one of our three essential macronutrients that we need to get in our diet. And um, I think I said it on another podcast, but, you know, a good proportion of our diet so about 50% of our diet should be coming from carbohydrates the reason then that people will lose weight when they cut out carbs is because they are cutting out a huge calorie source they are cutting out an essential food group but it would be the same as if you cut out fat or protein so you decrease the amount that you are eating which ultimately will lead you into a calorie deficit and lead you to lose fat but that is not because of the carbohydrates that is because of the calories so no carbohydrates don't make you fat and they are essential to include in our diet. So the next question is, um, 
about fasting and it is, is fasting one day a week bad for you? So fasting, intermittent fasting, um, time-restricted feeding, fasting is just going without food and it's often used as a weight loss tool. However, the research around it is really, really limited. And what I would say is that if you've got, um, you know, a, a history of disordered eating or, um, you know, disordered eating behaviours, binge eating behaviours, things like that, then I would just completely avoid fasting. Um, it is more than likely going to cause you more problems. Um, like I say, the research is really limited with it. There's no research to support, you know, that it's 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 good or bad for you. Um, but it's not a necessity. So there's some myths out there that that says, you know, you need a fast to reset your body and reset your metabolism and stuff like that, which is just absolute, <laughs> absolute bull. Um, you know, there's there's absolutely no evidence and no need for this. The only thing, and there's some recent research that's coming out about um time restricted feeding. So Time restricted feeding is, um, you know, where you have an eating window. So you restrict your feeding to a certain window of time. Some people will do it from like one till eight p.m. things like that. Um, but like I say, it's I think it's one research study that was done, and it might actually be down to, um, you know, it might be more related to the thermic effect of food being a factor here rather than actually, um, you know, the fasting. So I'm not going to go into it in too much detail because I don't want to confuse anybody. Um, but there is definitely not enough research to support it at the minute. So fasting one day a week, while there's nothing to say that it is bad for you, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, we know that eating regularly really, really supports your overall health and also your relationship with food. The other thing is getting regular amounts of um, servings of protein in your diet we know is really beneficial, especially if you are wanting to build muscle or maintain muscle. And since we know that muscle mass depletes as we get older, like over the age of 30, 35, then it's really essential that we are getting regular servings of protein in our diet because we don't store protein like we do fats, carbohydrates. So while it's not, you know, there's nothing to say that it isn't inherently bad or good for you. Um, I definitely wouldn't recommend it. If you are doing it alongside a healthcare professional, then hopefully they are supporting you to do it and there is a reason for it. Um, but yeah, I definitely wouldn't recommend fasting, especially if you have a history of disordered eating or binge eating. So the final question then is about um, brown fat cells, which might or might not be something that you've heard about. It's not something that I would, you know, say that you need to be at all concerned about. There has been some, um, you know, kind of attention brought to it over the last few years in relation to fat loss. Um, but I'll just touch on kind of what they are and the function of them, basically. So we have white, brown and beige fat cells in the body. And the beige are just a mix of the white and the brown. And the brown basically help to regulate temperature in cold environments. And we have lots and lots of these when we are babies. But then as we develop and um, develop the ability to shiver, the amount that we have reduces. So just like other fat cells, they store energy and they burn calories. Um, but you only have a small percentage of these in comparison to white fat. And most of the fat that you have is white fat. So um, brown fat cells are understood to have more mitochondria, which are basically like the little energy houses, the little powerhouses of cells. 
And the research kind of shows that while brown fat cells are more likely to be metabolically active because they have these more of these mitochondria, the volume that we have is really, really small and unlikely to make a recognizable difference to our overall energy balance. Um, So we do need more research into this area and there is more being done in relation to whether brown fat cells can be used um, to help with the treatment of obesity and things like that. I think the last research study that I read um, was done in 2023. So it's still really quite recent that we don't have enough research to make, um, you know, an overall kind of decision for the lay person about you know brown fat and and what we can do about it and things like that so I wouldn't get too too kind of hell-bent on it but it is interesting to know that we have you know different kinds of fat cells um, and potentially there might be more research comes out in relation to these brown fat cells in the future so I hope that you have enjoyed this episode like I say it's been a bit different um, and if you have any questions, any feedback, anything you would like to talk about or know, or if I can help you with absolutely anything at all, um, if there's anything that you aren't sure about and you would like to know what the research says, then please just get in touch. Um, and I will look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. As always, if you would, wouldn't mind to, you know, just leave it a little review, rate the podcast and please, please share it for anybody that you think might also be interested. And I thank you very much for listening.